Please keep that passage open this evening, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, as we think together about the rider on the white horse. The rider on the white horse. This picture of a rider on a white horse and all that it communicates to us is one that is in fact lodged deep into the culture in which we live. Think of some of the most beloved stories of our culture, like Snow White or Star Wars or the old westerns that some of you perhaps watched on Saturday afternoons. All of them at the climactic moment in the story, they have their equivalent of the rider on the white horse, the hero, the warrior that appears when it seems that all hope is lost and who saves the day. And the fact that that sort of picture appears in so much of our culture, in the music and in the, in the, in the art and in the films and in the storybooks, it speaks, friends, to the impact, acknowledged or otherwise, that God's word has had upon our part of the world. It speaks of the impact that the one great true story, the story of salvation in Jesus Christ has had in our part of the world. Jesus Christ is, of course, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19. And it's wonderful that we have this picture of him in our Bibles. It's crucially important, of course, to understand the first coming of Jesus Christ, that he that he has already come into this world once, that he took on human flesh, that he lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father. It's crucial that we understand why that was and, and the, the fact that that happened and, and all that, that, it, that it means. But Revelation was written for believers both then and now to realise, friends, that that, that experience of Christ the first time, of humility and of being rejected by most people and being misunderstood by most people, that is not Jesus' position today. Today, Jesus is a mighty, holy, exalted, glorious, fearsome king. And he is a king soon to return to our world. And we need to know that as we face a world that seems so much more powerful and successful and influential than the church of Jesus Christ. We need to keep this perspective, this view of Jesus in mind when we feel ourselves to be small and weak and facing what seem unbeatable forces arrayed against us. And so as we come to the end of another of the major sections of Revelation this evening, we have a picture emphasizing to us that our King soon to return, is far more glorious, far more powerful than all the powers that are arrayed against us in the world tonight. And so we want to think about uh, this rider on the white horse, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, he's not just any rider, he is the king. Uh, four, four points this evening. We're going to spend a lot more time on the first two than on the, than on the second two. Uh, but the first main point to consider this evening, the appearance of the king. The appearance of the king. What does he look like? Uh, every detail that we have here in this passage, friends, emphasizes to us the glory of Jesus Christ. His, his matchless, peerless, holy righteousness. And we notice, first of all, quite obviously, that he is seated on a white horse. That's the first thing to notice about how he appears, that he's on a white horse 
Verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. In the ancient world, if a king or an emperor went off to the battlefield and they were victorious, word would go back to their home city. He's won. We're we're triumphant. We've defeated our enemies. And word would come then that the king or the emperor was on his way back. And so preparation would be made to receive him. Uh, And there would be expectation building of the moment when he would ride through the city gates on a horse, if not a white horse, then certainly on a horse. And so the, the white horse was a symbol in that world of victory and of triumph. And that's, of course, why John sees a rider on a white horse here. Because, friends, Jesus is already victorious. The final battle, uh, the, the, the battle that was described back in Revelation chapter 16 as being Armageddon. Uh, we'll, we'll see it happen here uh, in, in a few moments in Revelation chapter 19. It's still to happen when the rider and the white horse appears. And yet, as we're going to see in, later in, in our study, it's no kind of battle at all. It's over in a flash. When Christ appears, he is already victorious. He is seated on a white horse. The other thing we notice, the second thing we notice about his appearance is his flaming eyes. Verse 12. Uh, verse 12 says, His eyes are like a flame of fire. Uh, Jesus was also described this way uh, back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, when John first sees him, when the when the apocalypse first begins. Uh, and he's also described that way in chapter 2 verse 18. As he writes one of the letters to the seven churches. It's a description that emphasizes to his friends that Jesus is judge. Fire tests metal. Fire draws out the dross. If metal is full of rust or corrosion and rot. It will not stand the heat of the fire. Fire. And similarly, the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ test each one of us. Jesus used this description of himself back in Revelation 2.18 when he was addressing the church of Thyatira. Thyatira was one of the churches that was strongly rebuked for tolerating false teaching. There There were people in Thyatira who said they loved Jesus, but who were actually in love with the world and They were excusing their sin and they were trying to find ways of accommodating uh, false doctrine in the church. And Jesus says, quit it. There's no point. I have eyes like a flame of fire. I can see what's really going on. You can't pull the wool over the fiery, flaming eyes of the rider on the white horse. He's the judge who sees the hearts of each one. We notice too in his appearance the crowns on his head. The crowns on his head. Verse 12 says, On his head are many diadems. Some of your translations may simply have crowns rather than diadems. Uh, A crown, of course, is a symbol of the king's right to rule. Uh, In the vision of the dragon back in Revelation chapter 12, uh, and the dragon, of course, is a picture of Satan, The dragon was wearing seven crowns. And in chapter 13, verse 1, the beast was wearing ten crowns. And that was Satan, friends, claiming control over the world. As we thought many times in Revelation, seven and ten are are whole, complete numbers. 
And Satan tries to counterfeit the, the claims of Christ. He tries to claim that I have, I have power and sovereignty over the whole world. You remember how Satan tempted the Lord Jesus? Matthew chapter 4 verse 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you. Satan thinks he rules the world. And of course he does have a degree of power and influence, a strong degree of influence in our world. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. But how many crowns are on the head of the rider on the white horse? Not just seven or ten, but many. Many, an infinite number. Because ultimate power, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth thing we notice about his appearance is his robe dipped in blood. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. There's a bit of debate here, even amongst the the Reformed commentators, as to whether this blood symbolises Jesus' own blood, shed, of course, at the cross, or whether it symbolises the blood of his enemies. Uh, We'll think shortly about the wine press and uh, and the the rider in the white horse stamping down, treading down his enemies in the wine press. And so the idea is perhaps of uh, the blood spattering like grape juice onto the robe of the rider in the white horse. Uh, I'm more persuaded by that second suggestion, just in the context of the vision, that this is the blood of his enemies. But whichever uh, your preference, as one preacher likes to say, you're sensible people, you go and think about it for yourselves. But whichever your preference is, the robe dipped in blood, friends, it emphasizes again that the final battle is already won. That the lamb has already shed his blood at the cross. He will never shed his own blood again. The only blood that will be spattered around now is the blood of his enemies. The final thing to notice about the appearance of the rider in the white horse is the sword in his mouth. The sword in his mouth. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And of course that imagery of the sword and the rod it's taking us all the way back to the Old Testament and we sang of, or or if we didn't sing of it earlier we will sing of it in a a short time from Psalm 2 the scepter, the, the rod of iron in the hand of the chosen king. And Psalm 2 says, with that rod, he will dash the nations to pieces like pottery. And why does the sword come out of the mouth of the rider in the vision? Again, it's all picture language. This is where uh, our, our fellow Christians who want to take things a bit more literally in Revelation begin to run into trouble. Uh, very odd that a sword would come out of someone's mouth. Um, but what does that picture mean? Well, it's telling us that the rider in the white horse again, it's telling us that he is a judge. The sword is symbolic of judgment. Imagine a judge condemning a criminal to death in a jurisdiction that carries the death penalty. Well, in a sense, friends, the criminal is doomed by the mouth of the judge. As soon as the judge utters the words, that person is doomed. And that's why the the sword here comes out of the mouth. It's speaking of the authority of the word of God, the authority of Christ to judge 
course, John says in his gospel that Jesus is the word that was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth, the way, the truth, the life. And so again, friends, his judgments are final. They're like a sword falling upon his enemies. So here's the appearance of this rider on the white horse. He's on a horse of victory. His robe is dipped in the blood, perhaps the spattered blood of his enemies. The sword is in his mouth. He has eyes like a flame of fire. This glorious figure, friends, this, this is Jesus today. This is the picture revelation wants you to have of him. Again, does not necessarily mean that we'll literally see a horse appear uh, on the day of judgment. But these are pictures to help us understand the glory of Christ and the judgment that he will enact when he appears. He is not just, he is not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Praise God that he is that. He is that this day. He is our shepherd. He is our tender, loving saviour, that bridegroom that we thought about this morning. But he is not just those things. He has eyes like a flame of fire. His mouth is like a sharp sword. You must be ready for the arrival of the rider on the white horse because he is your judge and he is your king. And that brings us secondly this evening, having thought about the appearance of the king, to think about the names of the king. <clears throat> the names of the king. And really these names, they could be sermons in themselves, but uh, we'll go through them, give some time to each of them here. The first name that this rider in the white horse is given in verse 11 is the name Faithful and True. And it's interesting that that's the first way that he's described uh, when he appears here, that he's called Faithful and True. Uh, because the second coming of Jesus, friends, is the only thing left for him to do. He has been faithful in all the other promises that he's made. He came once as he promised. He offered himself up in our place for our sin as he promised. There was a virgin birth as God had promised through Isaiah hundreds of years beforehand. The serpent crusher came as God promised to Adam thousands of years beforehand. Jesus has kept all those promises. The only promise he has yet to fulfill is his promise to come again. And so when he does appear here in this vision, this picture of his coming, he's called faithful and true. Here he is. The one who said he would come has come. He is keeping his final promise. Another name that he's given here, and this is perhaps sounds strange at first, but in verse 12, notice that he's also, he's also given a name that no one knows but himself. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. What does that mean? And how does it fit with the rest of this passage where we have several names of Jesus that are known to, to, to many of us who, who read this passage? Why does it say that he has a name written that no one knows but himself? Well, perhaps part of the answer, friends, is that no matter how much we do know, no matter how much we do learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, there's always more to learn. We might never, certainly not in this life, 
We will never know everything there is to appreciate and savour and treasure about the Lord Jesus. He is simply too glorious. In the Old Testament, the idea of, of naming someone, it meant that you had at least a degree of authority over them. You remember Adam naming all the animals uh, in, in paradise and even getting to name his wife, uh, naming the woman when, when God brought her to him. And, and that spoke of the fact that Adam had a, a delegated authority from God over the created realm and, and over his household. None of us have any authority over the rider and the white horse. There are things about him that perhaps we will never be able to name or fully know. And even if we know them in, a, in, a, in an intellectual sense, to understand them in a spiritual sense. You remember how Paul finishes that great section of Romans. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And Paul says that having given us three chapters of glorious, beautiful, wonderful theology on, 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 on election and, uh, and on the, the, the plan of God for salvation. And, and he expounds it and he explains it. And then after a while he just says, oh, the depths of the riches and the knowledge of God, unsearchable. If the Apostle Paul had to simply stop and praise God because he was far above his understanding, how much more, friends, do we need to stop and praise the God who we cannot fully know? Praise God that we do know him, that he's revealed himself to us, but he is far beyond our limited understanding. So he's called faithful and true. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's also called the word of God. Uh, Verse 13, we've thought about this already. It's, It's very closely tied with the picture of the sword. The two things really mean the same thing. The word of God is the name, the word of God, and the picture of the sword. You think of those statues that you see outside buildings all over the world. I think it's a lady, Lady Justice, isn't it, with her arms outstretched. And what does she have in each hand? She has the balance on the one hand, and she has the sword on the other. Because again, her judgments are definitive. Jesus, the judge, will speak the word of God because he is the word of God. His judgments are beyond question. And then the final name that is mentioned here in this passage, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The reason the name is on his thigh is likely because that's where the sword usually hangs when it's not in use, hangs down uh, along your thigh. Uh, And so again, this all ties together on the theme of Christ as a judge. Verse 15 says that with his great sword, the rider on the horse strikes down the nations, rules them with a rod of iron, and then treads them in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's a very graphic picture. That's the King of Kings. That's the Lord of Lords. As I mentioned in my prayer earlier, another war, a new war has been declared over the weekend. The nations rise against each other. Empires rise and fall. Cultures rise and fall. 
the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he will bring it all to an end. And those who have been in rebellion against him, he will tread in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so friends, do you see tonight the perspective Revelation gives us on Jesus, his appearance and his names? In a world of bombs and bullets, in a world of violence against the unborn, in a world of global powers manipulating and scheming, in a world that hates the church of Christ. We don't just need to know about the first coming of Jesus as much as we do need to know about it and appreciate it and worship him for it. But we also need to think about and prepare for the second coming of Jesus We need to see Jesus as he is today and as he will be when he returns. We need to appreciate and realize this is who he is. Eyes like flaming fire, a sharp sword in his hand, the nations trodden down unless they repent. Daniel Aiken in his commentary on Revelation puts some features of uh, the first and second comings of Jesus side by side for comparison just Uh, Showing the more glorious appearing of Christ that is still to come. Uh, I'll go through them briefly. At at Jesus' first coming, he rode on a donkey. At his second coming, he rides on a white horse. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He will come the second time as King and Lord. He came the first time in humility and weakness. He will come the second time in majesty and power. He was rejected the first time by many. He will be recognized the second time by all. The first time he came to seek and to save the lost. The second time he will judge and rule as king. The first time he came as God incognito. The second time he will come as God in all his splendor. If you're a Christian this evening... Do not long for that second coming. This is how it is in far more trivial matters of life, isn't it? We want the more glorious version of what we already have. We we had the picture in our minds very much this morning of the wedding day. And you think about it, ahead of the wedding day, the bride will try on the dress a few times. She'll maybe get an engagement photo shoot with her husband-to-be. And so, oh look, there's some photos of the couple They'll visit the venue, the the hosts will tell them, well on the day the guests will be here and and you'll be sitting here and this is how the the place settings will look. You get a taste of it. But it's only when the day finally arrives that what do you say? You see it in all its glory. The beautiful bride, the beautiful decorations, the wedding hall filled with guests. Likewise, friends, we're, we're still waiting to see Jesus in all his glory. But he is coming. Pray for it. Think about it. Be excited for it. Think about it when you hear politicians making speeches about legislation that will smuggle in yet more ungodly laws and practices. Think about that rider on the white horse. Think about it when you've just had to sit down and talk to your little child about some of the nonsensical things that they've heard in school, whether from a classmate or even perhaps in the course of some 
uh, lesson that's being taught, things that run totally contrary to God's word about gender and sexuality. Think about the rider on the white horse who sees it all. Think about the coming of glorious Jesus, the King of Kings, when we hear wars and rumours of wars in the news. Think about the rider on the white horse when you're lying in a hospital bed or sitting in a chair next to your loved one in a hospital bed. The rider on the white horse is going to change all of that. Think about the one who is faithful and true the next time someone lets you down. Someone said they would keep their word and they didn't keep their word. Jesus will. And as you look back over the course of your life, even over the course of the past week, has Jesus not been faithful and true to you? He said he's coming. He will come. This is Jesus today, friends. Alive, mighty, glorious. This is him coming soon, riding out on a white horse to victory. So we've thought about the appearance of the king. We've thought about the names of the king. As I said, more briefly now, we're going to think about the armies of the king. And then finally, the enemies, the, the final judgment of the enemies of the king. So first of all, the armies of the king. Where will you and I be when this rider on the white horse appears? Where are we as Jesus rides out for his final battle? Well, look at verse 14. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. It's not just that Jesus gets a white horse. All of his people get a white horse as well. Uh, the fact that it's armies plural there in verse 14 would suggest that perhaps uh, this is both angels and believers. Other passages of scripture uh, emphasize angels coming with Christ at his, at his second coming. Uh, you can read these for yourself later. Zechariah 14, Matthew chapter 13, verse 41. Other passages as well talk about angels accompanying Christ. But the whole church, the saints, were included here as well. Jesus appears in bright glory. We, his followers, will appear in bright glory too. Jesus appears on a horse of victory. We will appear on horses of victory too. We're victorious. This will be our moment of triumph as well as Jesus' moment of triumph. Sometimes in the ancient world, this was how battles were decided. Armies would say to one another, you put up your best man, we'll put up our best man. If your man wins, you all win. If our man wins, we all win. You remember, boys and girls, that's what happened with David and Goliath. You remember what Goliath said? First Samuel 17, verse 9, he strides out to challenge Israel. He says, if he is able, if, if someone from Israel is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And those terms of the battle were honoured. When young David eventually stepped forward and defeated Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, verse 51, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. David's victory was Israel's victory. His triumph 
was Israel's triumph. And it's the same for us friends. The army of Christ. Paul says in Romans 5.19. By one man's obedience. The many will be made righteous. Jesus has defeated sin. So all of us have defeated sin. Jesus has risen again. We will rise again. Jesus has defeated death and Satan. We will defeat death and Satan. Jesus is righteous. He's made us righteous. We thought about that this morning. Notice the echo here uh, in, in, this, in this chapter, verse 14, uh, to what we thought about this morning. It says that the armies of heaven were dressed in fine linen, white and pure. So again, as we thought about this morning, Jesus has bedecked his army, he has bedecked his people in his own righteousness. But I love that it says as well in verse 14 that the armies were following him. They're just watching. Same way that the armies of Israel just follow behind David. Okay, David, you go out. You, you, you beat the giant there. All the best with that, by the way. Uh, and we'll just hang back. And David did defeat their enemy. And then they all followed him. To triumph. And that's what the armies of heaven are doing here. It's the rider in the white horse who wins the victory. We're just going to follow him. And enjoy the victory lap. But then in contrast to the armies of the king. We have the final judgment of the enemies of the king. The final judgment of the enemies of the king. Uh, Joel Beakey describes Revelation 19 as a tale of two suppers. The whole book could be described, as we've said before, as a tale of two cities. But chapter 19 is a tale of two suppers. We thought about the marriage supper of the Lamb this morning. How wonderful and joyful it is. But here at the end of the chapter we have another supper and it's a very different picture. Look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. These birds, we assume, are like vultures. They're scavengers. They, they circle overhead when the battle is about to start and they wait for the bodies to fall so that they can pick the bones clean. It's a gruesome picture. And it's emphasizing to his friends the certain and total defeat of every power that would rise against Christ. Look at verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him. Remember we saw in chapter 16 how Satan was stirring up the beast and the false prophet to gather uh, the, the people of earth. Uh, and so here they are gathered against him who was sitting, sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Remember we either are sealed by the lamb or you have the mark of the beast. It's only one or the other. These two, that's the, the beast and the false prophet. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. We've seen the beast and the false prophet through, through most of Revelation since chapter 12 or 13. Uh, and and we've, we've thought a few times about how they, they are pictures of the nations 
uh, the, the political leaders, the religious leaders, under the influence and power of Satan. That's what the beast and the false prophet represent. And so whether it was Egypt or Babylon or Rome, whether it's the, the cultural forces at work in our world today, the globalist powers, the, uh, the countercultural powers, these are the, the, the heads of the beast that rear up every so often. And here they gather all the forces under the sway of Satan. This is the final stand, friends. This is the last stand of the world here in chapter 19. And at the return of Christ, his enemies are done. And it's worth noticing how swiftly it's all decided. No sooner has the beast appeared. Verse 19, I saw the beast. Verse 20, the beast was captured. Not a very drawn out process. Not a very back and forth, who's going to win type of battle. Over like that. And along with the false prophet, the beast is thrown into this eternally burning lake of fire and sulfur. And the, the mention of sulfur there emphasizes that this is, uh, this is eternal. This is going to go on and on. That stench is just going to be in the air all the time. Again, friends, it's a picture Public, swift, decisive judgment. The final battle, Armageddon, over in a blink of the eye. Martin Luther, in his classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, wrote of this final judgment from Christ and the powers of Satan. He says, one little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. It was just one little stone in David's sling that fell Goliath. One word from the rider and the white horse will condemn the nations and bring the battle of Armageddon to, to a close. Look at verse 21, the end of the vision. The rest, that's the, the peoples of the earth, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The sword again is the word of God, the word of Jesus, the final word, swift, decisive judgment. And it only leaves us to consider again, friends, in closing, which are you headed for? The question this morning was funeral or wedding? The question this evening is marriage supper or judgment supper? Are you going to be arrayed in white, enjoying fellowship and celebration with the Lamb? Or are you in danger of the sword of the rider and the white horse condemning you to death? Don't be fooled, dear friend. Don't be fooled by what seems the, the never-ending nature of this world. It all seems so permanent. It hasn't been here for that long at all. And it's not going to be here for much longer. And you haven't been here for very long. And you won't be here much longer. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. With the sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. Rather than wait for his rod to strike you. Trust in his blood to redeem you. And if you've done that today, Christian friend, I would encourage you. Stop more often in your day or your week 
and praise God for the rider and the white horse. The next time you roll your eyes, some silly, empty politician's promise. Remember the rider and the white horse. Next time you hear a war declared, remember the rider on the white horse. In a world of broken promises, think about the one who is faithful and true. In a world where words are many, on our phones and on our screens, everyone competing for attention and follows and likes. Listen to the one who is the word of God, who has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Rejoice, Christian friends, that the return of Jesus, at the return of Jesus, our part will simply be to follow him to victory, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we wait for that day to come, let's do what Revelation urges us to do at the very end of the book, to pray more often, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.